Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Let me tell you, I, I give to my children. Man, I, I discipline my children. Man, I, I, I challenge my children. Boy, look what all we've done for our children. Our children know that I love them because all I have given and all I have done. If you are to be a successful parent, we must heed what I have called the first commandment of parenting. It is, thou shalt love your children. The truth is, being loved is one of the greatest needs of every child. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young shares a message called, Thou Shalt Love Your Children, about how to leave a legacy of love to your kids. So stay right there. The Winning Walk is coming right up. Now here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Thou Shalt Love Your Children. We've had two sermons of introduction on the family. We talked about a dysfunctional family. We talked about a functional family. Now this morning we begin what I have called the first of the Ten Commandments of Parenting. Now an interesting thing is happening. Some of the empty nesters, I'm in that category, who now have grandchildren, or some who have never married, or some singles, or some teenagers, all of us in this study of parenting have been able to look back and determine what kind of job our fathers and mothers did. And a challenge to us to step up and be the kind of parents that God would have us to be if that blessing is presented to us. So this has been an interesting study. We've looked back at our childhood and we've learned from that and therefore we are able to understand better who we are and where we are and what we're about. And some of those deadly little things that still crop up in your life and in my life. And this helps the Lord God Almighty through Jesus Christ to do a healing ministry in the lives of all of us as we study parenting. Our scripture this morning is found in Genesis, but I'm going to read in Psalms, first of all. Psalm 127, the first part of verse 1, and then I'll read verse 3 through verse 5. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Verse 3 following. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. That's children. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Let's bow and prepare for the teaching of his word. Father, we're overwhelmed with the blessings on this body of faith, this church, this ecclesia.
Father, may we be found faithful, especially during these challenging days when you've given us so much and we've taken so many steps of faith. May we be found faithful with the blessings that you've given us. And Lord, we know you'll pour out more blessings as we reach out to you and we're obedient to you. Lord, we walk around in some dangerous territory when we deal with marriage and family and relationships. It is my prayer that your word and your principles may be heard and received and understood. Let me get out of the way, Father. You speak to us. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine that you would walk in our sanctuary and you would take a seat because you were going to a memorial service. And as you were seated, you would see the casket would be down front. It would be open. You'd see people come by and look in and stop and pause and whisper to one another and and some were crying, and they'd go, and they were seated. In a little bit, the organist began to play, and the funeral directors came in, and they prepared the casket, and they closed the lid that last time. And then people began to come in, and finally the pastors came in, and they went to the podium, and they asked that everyone would stand and you would stand with the group and the family would come in to be seated in the family section. And as the family was coming in, you were absolutely shocked, amazed. That's your family. Those are your special friends seated there. And suddenly, you were shocked and startled to realize that you were attending your own funeral. Everyone was asked to be seated. A soloist had a number. The pastor stood up, read some scripture, made some generic comments about you. And then he said, we're going to do an unusual thing. The children are going to speak a word about this loved one. You were seated back there, not missing a note or a word as your children went to the platform. You could hardly wait to hear what they would say about you as a parent. In fact, what they would say and what they would remember about you would determine whether or not you had been a success as a parent. Pretty good barometer, wouldn't you say? A sobering dream, a, a sobering thing to imagine, wouldn't you say? Now forget that for just a moment. 
if you are to be a successful parent, if we are to get on with the task of being parents, we must heed what I have called the first commandment of parenting. It is, thou shalt love your children. Now, somebody in the back balcony might say, boy, that's an easy one. <laughs> I thought we were going to be challenged today. Love your children. Let me tell you, I, I give to my children. Man, I, I discipline my children. Man, I, I, I challenge my children. Man, I, I brought them in this world. I put clothes on their back. Boy, look what all we've done for our children. Our children know that I love them because all I have given and all I have done, all I have been involved in their lives, oh, I love my children. In fact, it's very, very rare to find a mother or father who will stand up and say, I just don't love my children. You just hardly ever hear that. And all the parents who are here would say, this is not for me. I love my children. But yet, we have all been children. And our mothers and our dads would have said exactly the same thing, wouldn't they? But we know as children, in many ways, we did not receive, we did not get the kind of love that we needed and we would have loved to have received. Right? So what does it mean to love your children? Thou shalt love your children. What is involved in that? I think we can look at a biblical example and see parents, Abraham and his wife Sarah, and we can see clearly that they really love their son Isaac in exactly the way that we are to love if we are to be successful, and I would say biblical parents. And it may be a little different than what we would have thought or would have guessed. Now, if you know anything about the Bible story of Abraham and Sarah, you know how long they anticipated the birth of a child. In fact, God promised them over and over again, you're going to have a son, but not just any son, but a very special son. And you read in Genesis chapter number 13, God is talking to Abram, and he says in verse 5 of Genesis 13, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also can be numbered. And we don't know exactly Abram's age when this promise was made. He was perhaps 50 some odd. And he said, well, you know, I, I'm still a young man. That's okay. And then perhaps he was about 70. Still, he had no children by his wife, Sarah. And God makes another promise to him. In the 15th chapter of Genesis, reading in verse 5, God is saying, and he took him, Abram, outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, he said to them, so shall your descendants be. In other words, your descendants, Abram, will be 
more than the stars in the sky. He made that promise to him. He was perhaps 75. And Abram must have said, Lord, uh, you know, it's about time. Don't you think that Sarah and I had, our, you know, at least our first son? And then I want you to see something else. Look at verse 17. Abraham here, the Bible tells us, was 99 years old. <laughs> and God speaks to him again. And it says, and Abram, verse 3, and Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, by the way, that's a good way to speak with God, just fall flat on your face, isn't it? If you've never prayed flat on your face, I don't know if you've really prayed. God can do business with us when we're flat on our face. Anyway, and Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. This is God speaking. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram means esteemed father. But your name shall be Abraham, Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. The word Abraham means father of multitudes. And he's 99 years old, and he and Sarah had yet to have their first child. <laughs> Can't you imagine old Abraham going in the marketplace and meeting some individuals, and they'd said, well, what is your name, sir? He said, uh, my name is Abraham. He said, well, they, they told us your name was Abram. He said, no, God met with me yesterday and wanted me to call myself Abraham, father of multitudes. And the stranger would say, well, Abraham, how many children do you have? Zero. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they said, well, the old guy's slipping a little bit. You know, he looks good, but, you know, he wants, he says God told him to change his name from Abram, esteemed man, esteemed father, to Abraham, father of multitude, and he doesn't, hadn't had his first kid yet. Does that sound ridiculous to anybody here? God made these promises through the years and perhaps through about 60 years. It's been 25 years since Abraham left Haran and those silent years he was there. 60 years, God says, I'm going to give you many descendants. You're going to be the father of multitudes. You're going to be a special relationship with me and no children and he's 99 years old and Sarah, Sarah, his wife, is 90 years old. But look what happens. It is really something. It is, it is supernatural. Chapter 21 of Genesis, Then the Lord took note of Sarah, and he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. She got pregnant. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. Isaac means laughter because when Abraham came home and said, God told me you're going to be pregnant, she's 90 years old, she began to laugh. I identify with Sarah. So they named their boy Isaac, laughter. Verse 4 is a significant verse on parenting. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. 
That's the first thing Abraham and Sarah did in order to express love for this supernatural son, Isaac, was they had him circumcised. Now, at this point, he gave his child, those parents gave their child an identity. The first thing we have to do, parents, is to give our sons and daughters an identity. And that's what circumcision is all about. We don't talk much about circumcision today. I guess we're a little modest about it. We know it's a part generally of hygiene and cleanliness, and it takes place usually now when male children are born, but it says a great deal about parenting. Now, in antiquity, circumcision what was done all the time for many different reasons. Sometimes it was the, the foreskin was sacrificed to fertility gods. Sometimes it was a symbol that a part of someone was given that represented the whole. Sometimes it was an initiation into a tribe or an initiation into a nation. But we know exactly what circumcision was in those biblical days. It was a sign of the covenant. God said to Abraham, you be circumcised, and this will be a mark that you are in a covenant relationship with me. And therefore, God's peculiar people, the Jews, were called out to be the redemptive agents for all the world. And Abraham was set aside, and therefore he circumcised Isaac, and he was saying to Isaac, you have an identity. You are a part of a special family, the family of God in a unique way. Parents, we have to give our sons and daughters an identity. And we do that. Someone will be introduced to you and they'll say, well, that's Bill's son. Well, if we know something about Bill, that says a lot, for better or for worse. Oh, that, that's, that's Mary's daughter. If we know something about Mary, we look at that daughter and that daughter has to live up to that mom or has to overcome the inheritance that that mom has left behind, right? We, we put people in categories. We give them an identity. And the important thing, parents, we must give our sons and daughter an identity that, that gives them a sense of authenticity. Now, what does that mean? A sense that they're real. Now, let me tell you something. Children will break your rules and they will break your heart. Right? Sure. How do we handle it? If we give them a sense of authenticity, we handle it by, first of all, getting in touch with their feelings. Have you ever had your kids say to you, you just don't understand. Red lights ought to go off on your dashboard of your computer in your mind and say, if my son or my daughter doesn't think I understand, it means I haven't listened enough, I haven't gotten in touch with their feelings enough. Now, we have those parental lines. You've made your bed, you've got to lie in it. I know no one has ever said that. Now, you've gotten yourself into this mess, and I, nothing I can do about it. I know we've never said anything like that. 
But the bottom line, if we are to give them authenticity, we have to be in touch with their feelings. And the scripture for that is James 1.19, how we need to write that verse on our hearts in every relationship, especially in the relationship with our children. James 1.19, what does it say to us? We are to be quick to listen. We are to be slow to speak. And we are to be slow to get angry, to get mad, and to lose our temper. And most of us are 180 degrees from that scripture. If you're going to give your children a sense of authenticity, that they're real, that they're valuable, that they're precious, you'll listen to them. They'll break your heart, they'll break your rules, but you get in on their feeling. Let me tell you something. What was attractive about Jesus Christ? Was it his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? To a degree. Was the fact that he could perform miracles? Oh, that's a big deal. But I submit to you the thing that drew people to Jesus Christ was his compassion, was his love, was his kindness, that when people cried, he cried with them. When they celebrated in weddings, he celebrated with them. And that's what we have to do with our children. Doesn't mean we're lenient necessarily. Doesn't mean we're overbearing necessarily. But it means before we respond and say, I can fix that. Before we respond and say, you were out of bounds, let me tell you what I'm going to do about that. Before we fix anything, before we discipline for anything, before we acquiesce to anything, first of all, we have to get in touch with their feelings, their emotions. Kids get hurt. Kids make mistakes. Kids get angry. Kids break down the fence. Kids kick down the gate. Kids go against everything that's sensible and right, but before we can get to them, if we're going to give them a sense of authenticity, we have to get in touch with their feelings. This is a part of giving them an identity. You see it? And the next thing we have to do in giving this identity to kids, we have to give them a sense of security. You know how we do that? They know we love them unconditionally. You know, I, I really love you if you make straight A's, or I'm really going to do this for you if you, you know, they meet all of our terms, all I can, they have to know the bottom line is, whatever, I love you, the mother and the father, we love our kids unconditionally. I remember my Aunt Gladys, my mother's four sisters, how they were in competition with one another, and they played those little silly games all of my life. My Aunt Gladys rose above all of that because she loved all of her sisters unconditionally. Jesus Christ taught her that. She'd experienced an overwhelming experience of grace. And she'd, she'd walked away from God for years. She came to Christ, and she just had grace and love for everybody. All of us love Gladys. All the sisters love Gladys. She stayed out of the fray. And we had a sense of security with us because we knew she loved us unconditionally. That's the way Jesus Christ loves us, ladies and gentlemen. When we're contrary to the clear teaching of God's Word, does Christ come in and blast us and shame us? He comes in with grace and listens as he did with the woman of the well, as he did with the woman caught in the act of adultery, as he does with you and with me. 
We don't have to spend a lot of time being blasted for our sins. Periodically, yes, the Holy Spirit convicts and convinces us. And then God comes in Christ and forgives us. We have security in Christ because we know He loves us unconditionally. That gives you kids security. Security. Well, if you do this, I'm going to throw you out of the... You do this, I'm telling you, I'm taking you out of my will. If you... Do, how obscene. If our kids need security, we have to love them unconditionally. Not only do they need authenticity, we get in touch with their feelings, need security... We love them unconditionally, and they understand that, and they know that. But also, we give them significance. You know how you give your kids significance? And, and you need it all of your life. When the kids grow up, uh, you, you need it all of their life. All of us need this. You know how you give significance? You praise. How long has it been you said to your son and daughter, you know, boy, your creativity is just wonderful. You know, you, you stayed there with little sister, and, you, and I know you wanted to go out with your friends. That, that was a fabulous thing to do. You read the one-minute manager, the two authors have a wonderful little phrase in there. They said, your employees catch them doing something right and show appreciation. We're good at catching people doing things that are wrong. That's what you do with your kids. Catch them doing something right and show appreciation. What a difference that would have made in my family. My mother was always looking for something wrong. I mean, dot every I, cross every T, legalism, judgmental. Boy, she'd caught me doing something right one time and expressed appreciation, something that I didn't achieve in, that she applauded about, now you're doing it. Just some little casual thing. See, that's what we need. Catch them doing something right and, and praise and brag and condemn. Doesn't matter if they pass or fail, that's another issue. You've given them authenticity because you're in touch with their feelings. Remember our first principle? Our first principle we talked about, everybody needs to remember this. Rules without, what? Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. See? Rules without a relationship. Some of you are not on a spanking, disciplined relationship with your son or daughter. You can't discipline them. You shouldn't discipline them because you don't have a relationship there. And this, all of this gives to your sons and daughters an identity. Not only do we give an identity to them as Abraham and Sarah did, with circumcision and the family understanding as to who we are and what we're about, you are authentic. You are secure. You are significant. They did it. But the second thing they did is super. They lived an example. You have to live an example. You say, well, how did that work out? Can you imagine how much Abraham and Sarah loved that boy, Isaac? Born to them when dad was 99 years old. You talk about a Ripley's, believe it or not. <laughs> Can you imagine that longed for, that prayed for, that anticipated son, the promise of God? Boy, how precious that boy was. But one day Abraham felt impressed by God to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. My only son, my only begotten son, the son of promise? Yeah, 
offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. So Abraham got Isaac and they started on that long two or three day trip to Mount Moriah and they cut down some logs to make an altar to make a fire and they carried with them in a little pottery vessel some coals so they could start a fire and he put all of the wood on the back of Isaac and they started up the, the hill to Mount Moriah and Isaac looked at his father. He'd been to times when his father had sacrificed for sin before. He'd been with his dad and he said, Dad, we have the wood and we have the fire. Where is the sacrifice? Isaac didn't know he was to be the sacrifice. And Abraham said, God will provide. Isn't that great? God will provide. And he does, doesn't he? Anyway, they got up there and he built the altar and he put the wood down, he put the fire down, and he bound Isaac. Isaac was an older boy now, a teenager, perhaps a young man, and he put him on the altar. And he pulled a knife and would have taken the life of his son he loved so much, but God stayed his hand and said, Abraham, I was just testing you. I was just testing you to see if I really have first place in your life. Isn't that great? And then there was a ram over in the bushes and God provided a ram and the ram was offered as a sacrifice and he took Isaac from off the altar. You think Isaac ever forgot that experience? <laughs> what did Isaac learn from that? God has the highest priority in my father and mother's life, even over their unconditional love for me. He lived an example. And the third thing, if we are to really love our children, we not only have to give them an identity, not only do we have to live an example, but we have to leave a legacy. Well, the truth is, we all leave a legacy. You take Abraham and his nephew Lot. They were herdsmen together, and they became wealthy together, and, and Abraham and Lot they got so wealthy, their, their herds were so large that they realized they had to divide their herds up. They couldn't move together and, and develop the sheep and the goat and the camel and all the herds that they had. And so Abraham went to Lot and said, Lot, you pick out where you want to have your land and run your cattle and, and run your sheep and run your goat. And, you know, Lot wasn't dumb. <laughs> he looked around and says, well, now, by the way, Abraham should have had first choice. He was the senior. He said, well, I'll take the place down by the Jordan River. If you've ever been to Israel, that's where the trees are. That's where the water is. That's where it's fertile land down by the Jordan Valley. Now, up in the, moving up in the mountains, up there in the, in the Mount of uh, Wilderness Temptation and Zen, that's sort of barren country, but down the Jordan. So Lot took all of his sheep down by the Jordan. The Bible says that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then you read a little further, you says, Lot moved outside of Sodom. He pitched his tent outside of Sodom. And you read on another chapter or two, it says, Lot and his family pitched their tent in Sodom. They moved into Sodom, and guess what happened? Sodom moved into them. That's the way it works, ladies and gentlemen. 
You move into Sodom and say, I'm going to be God-fearing, but you stay around Sodom, Sodom will move into you. It'll move into me. And you know the Bible at all, you know the disastrous results for Lot and his wife and his daughters. Unbelievable, unseemly, ungodly. And that was the legacy that Lot left. What about Abraham? You read these passages in Genesis, take your your magic mark and underline how many times you read the phrase, Abraham pitched his tent and he built his altar. He pitched his tent and he built an altar. He pitched his tent and he built an altar. You know what we do? We build our tent, our houses, our lands, our possessions, all the things, and we just pitch our altar. He built his altar and he pitched his tent. In other words, he knew he was moving through. He knew he was a sojourner. He knew this life was brief, and wherever he went, he just pitched his tent, but he built an altar. That is leaving a legacy for your children. And that imaginary funeral service, they would walk up there, and whatever they would say, they would say, my mom and my dad, they left me this kind of legacy. Jerry Clower from Yazoo City, Mississippi, graduated to be with God a few years ago. He stood up once and he said this in his bucolic country western way. Jerry said, every son and every daughter ought to be able to stand up and say flat-footed, my pappy was a godly man. (laughs) I like that. That's a legacy. My mother, my pappy was a godly lamb. That's when you leave a legacy. But there are different types of legacies. Several years ago, a team of sociologists in New York did a study encompassing almost 200 years, and they picked out two contemporary families there in the 18th century. They were contemporary, and they traced all of their descendants as far as they could. One of these families, they looked at over 1,200 of his descendants, and to see if there's anything to the fact that a legacy is indeed passed on from generation to generation, whether it is plus or whether it is minus. The truth is we all pass on legacies. We know that. You bring up a son or a daughter in a home that is filled with criticism, guess what happens? They turn out to be negative people. You bring up a son and daughter in which there is conflict, guess what happens? They grow up to be angry people. You bring up a son and daughter into a family where there is kindness and tenderness, guess what happens? They look at the whole world as a pleasant place. And we could just recite chapter and verse and chapter and verse and chapter and verse and chapter and verse and chapter and verse, and chapter and verse. on and on we go. But these sociologists did a study of two families. One family was named the Max Jukes family. And Max Jukes was an atheist. His wife was agnostic. 
they, they were tough-minded, mean-spirited, vicious people, and they traced over 1,200 of their descendants, these sociologists, over almost a couple of hundred years, and this is what they found. 440 lives of outright debauchery, 310 paupers and vagrants, 190 public prostitutes, 130 convicted criminals, over 100 alcoholics, over 100 habitual thieves, 55 victims of sexually transmitted disease, and seven murderers. The study that I read, and you can debate with these studies, said that they did not find a single one of the 1,200 descendants of Max Jukes and his wife who made any positive contribution to society over a period of almost 200 years. A contemporary of Max Jukes was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a missionary the president of Princeton University, and arguably the most brilliant man America has ever produced. He and his wife, Sarah, passed on a godly, godly legacy, and as they traced the generations of Jonathan Edwards, this is what they discovered. Over 300 clergymen, missionary, or theological professors, over 120 college professors, over 110 lawyers, over 60 physicians, over 60 authors of good books, 30 judges, 14 presidents of universities, numerous giants in American industry, three U.S. congressmen, one vice president of the United States. What kind of legacy will you leave? You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.